0: everyone this is Caleb and today I am so grateful for you to be joining me here on the podcast as I talk with Bo So and we're going to get into his brand new book called Good Arguments How Debate Teaches Us to Listen and Be Heard Now if this is your first time listening to the Learners Corner podcast I do want to tell you about a couple of things that inform pretty much everything that we do here and that is around three core ideas, three core values that we have here. The first one is this, is that we want to create a safe place to have difficult conversations because there are just some uh, places to where maybe you don't feel safe, don't feel like you can engage in some conversations for one reason or another, either because of the person that you want to talk with, you don't feel like it's actually going to lead into good conversation or it's just really sensitive material. Or, uh, or subject matter that you're engaging in. The second one is this, is that we truly believe that we can learn from anyone and from everyone, regardless of whether or not we agree with them 100%. And sometimes it is learning from their example or from their failure of what to do or what not to do in some cases. And then the last one is this, is that we truly believe that we can learn from anything and from everything, whether that's something serious or something trivial. Now, today we're going to uh, be talking a lot around the, the first value of how do you create a safe place to have uh, difficult conversations and how can you be someone who can engage in conversations to where you don't necessarily see everything eye to eye with someone. And I absolutely love talking about these conversations of how do you become that type of person that you can engage in because it's just not talked about a lot. And I just think that's going to become a skill that is going to be more and more important as we continue um, to become more polarized as it as it seems and that it's going to be uh, just critical for us to engage and and just to, in general, I would say that it is critical for us to engage with people who see the world differently than us. And so that's what we're going to talk a lot about today in my conversation with Bo. Now, if you have an idea or someone or something that you would love us to talk with or uh, talk about or cover here on the podcast, I would love to hear from you. And the best way to reach out to me is Learners Corner podcast at gmail.com. Now, let me tell you a little bit about Bo, and then we are going to jump right in to the conversation. Bo So is a two-time world champion debater and former coach of the Australian national debating team and the Harvard College Debating Union. One of the most recognized figures in the global debate community. He has won both the World Schools Debating Championship and the World Universities Debating Championship. He has written for the New York Times, the Atlantic, CNN, and other outlets as well. He worked as a national reporter for the Australian Financial Review and has been a regular panelist on the primetime Australian debate program, The Drum. He has graduated from Harvard University and received a master's degree in public policy from... Uh, singhua University, and he is currently a Juris Doctor candidate at Harvard Law School. And without any further wait, here is our conversation.
1: Hey Caleb. It's an honor to be on your show.
0: Yeah. And just as we're getting started, you know, one of the things that I love uh, speaking with people about is I love hearing their their journey. And in your case, you know, uh, writing this book, Good Arguments, I would just love to start and hear from you about what initially first got you interested in this idea of debate and disagreement and all of that. Maybe
1: I'll tell you a bit about how I got into debate and then um, I'll tell you about the writing process. Yeah. So I moved from South Korea to Australia when I was eight with my parents and I didn't speak English. And I learned that the hardest part of doing that was adjusting to real life conversation, which by the way, is nothing like what the textbooks say it might be. (laughs) And the hardest uh, conversations to adjust to our arguments, because the rhythms of ordinary speech break down and people tend to interrupt and that and an awareness that my differences from my peers could mark me out as an outsider and could unravel the belonging I was working really hard to achieve at that stage that made me want to be very quiet um, and very conflict-averse and to keep most of my thoughts to myself. And the thing that broke me out of that posture of conflict aversion was a promise that my year five teacher made me, which was that in debating, when one person speaks, no one else does. And to someone who had been spoken over and spun out of conversation, um, that sounded pretty irresistible. So and what I found there was, you know, really a rich world of knowledge, and a community built around disagreement, and not despite it, that helped me find my voice and to be heard. And so it was all going pretty well, I won the world championships in um, the world, the, the second one, the universities won in January 2016. And I was first approached to write this book then actually. And if I did that, it would have been a fairly straightforward how-to of mastering this activity, this art form, and, and you know, it would be like a sedentary sports memoir <laughs> of, of learning this thing and triumphing at it. But you remember what happened a few months after that was the presidential cycle between Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton where the debates became not only a symbol of polarization that had created these rifts in this country but also became an instrument of furthering that polarization and you know there are a lot of things that happened in my life after that but but we we lived through that period of a great freeze in the relationship between the U.S. and China. I was a newspaper reporter in Australia, where I saw a lot of those poisonous um, political elements um, affect our politics as well, and that made me think again that maybe conflict isn't just isn't worth it, and at worst, disagreement can be a kind of an existential danger for our country, for our democracy. And I found myself returning to that posture of conflict diversion. And it was in that search for something positive to say at that moment, not just the diagnosis of the problem and not just solutions at a structural level, but what can we do day by day, that I started thinking about, well, what was it that broke me out of that view of conflict in the first instance since I was debate? And so I wanted to write a book that told people everything I know about debate. And I, this is a podcast about lifelong learning, obviously. Um, but also wanted to make an argument that disagreement could be more than a divisive conflict, um, a source of personal pain, um, and of, and of danger, um, to our society, that it could be the opposite of all of those things too. Mm
0: -hmm. Um, and hence the book. Yeah. Can you talk about that time that you mentioned to where, um, you know, you mentioned, you know, growing up, you were conflict, you know, conflict aversion. And then you go back to conflict aversion. Yes. Can you talk about um, <laughs> just that, that that time to where, because I'm, again, I, I'm just imagining, you know, you could correct yeah. me, but I imagine there, there had to be like, maybe some shame in there. It's like, man, I thought I dealt with this oh. already. And just talk to me about that time. And like, what helped you work through that to get to the point oh. to where it's like, okay, dis- disagreement, conflict is an okay thing?
1: It's a wonderful question. Um, I think the first thing is, there, there is in a broad sense that return to conflict, diversion, as you said, but actually I see these as competing impulses within me every day. Mm. Right, and even when we go to a just a party where we don't know very many people, right, or we go to a new neighborhood, or we move offices, um, we're usually a bit quieter than usual. <laughs> and so I think I think I still feel one, one um, part of me that wants to that that believes I've been working at this. I believe this case. Um, and even while I've been on the road promoting the book, I think there were instances where I felt the shyer parts of me, the parts that wanted to remain quiet or to back away. So um, I don't think those are impulses that you ever transcend. Hmm. Now, having said that, um, th- there were these two instances where the conflict diversion came to the fore a lot more. And in terms of the return Um, I'm not sure I experienced it as shame. Mm -hmm. And the reason is because I intellectualized it. I don't know if that's a word. I gave it an intellectual explanation the second time around, right? So the first time it was, I don't want to get hurt. Mm -hmm. And the second time around, I was saying, You know, in our political discourse, we say things like we should organize, we should turn out the base, you know, sort of stuff the other side. Let's just, you know, find our people, um, push our agenda, so on. And I think I believe that for a period or I convinced myself of that. And, And I think especially in the aftermath of that 2016 election, it was very easy to fall into that pattern. But I wonder if in addition to the intellectual case for that approach, some of those things that you were describing of fear
0: mm-hmm.
1: of the other side, or um, a lack of confidence in ourselves and a lack of confidence in others to treat us with grace. I wonder if that's a a part of that intellectual response as well.
0: Yeah, it even got me thinking. And I, I would love your thoughts on this too. If it's maybe. We're living in a time to where we do not want to, like a lot of people do not want to engage in disagreements or arguments. It's more like, well, maybe I do, but I just want to do it so that I could literally shut you down and silence you. Um, (laughs) Can can you talk about just that, that dynamic and trying to figure out how to engage in, uh, in healthy disagreement in this time to where people are trying to shut you down. And if you, like you were mentioned, there is no grace for, oh, if I misspoke, then I I might get canceled. Yes,
1: yes. I think two, uh, I would say two things about that. Uh, I mean, one is, I think we all have this one impulse to raise our voice and be heard, another impulse to stay quiet. And the things that bring each one to the fore is culture helps, right? So, uh, um. A culture that prizes people speaking up or doesn't a culture that treats those people with grace as you say or doesn't also i want to say in the book um it helps to have the skills right so one of the things about um lifelong learning is you know if you have a set a toolkit and a and and something approaching a mastery it becomes a bit easier
0: Mm
1: -hmm. um so I think I'm always thinking about how do we create conditions where people feel comfortable taking that leap of faith to reach to, to raise their voice. And it's always going to be a leap of faith, I think. yeah. Um, so I, that's sort of one thing I would say about it. I think the second in terms of the grace point is, uh, and this is something I'm thinking about recently is, I think we make a mistake when we, import in the values we might have for a public debate, like a high profile public debate to private settings. So in if you're a, a pundit on MSNBC and you said something quite poisonous or, or something you know that, that can harm a mm-hmm. lot of people, I think a, a different kind of response is appropriate to that person versus the uncle who said something a bit naughty at at Thanksgiving dinner, yeah. you know, and I'm not I'm not too sure about that and, and where we draw would draw the line, but I think one part of the gracelessness that we're seeing in the public culture today is just this assumption that everything is, you know, um, that that there isn't a room for a kind of a a private or even intimate exchange between two people without it being you're a representative of this party, I'm a representative of this party and imagining ourselves being viewed by an audience and social media kind of feeds into that as opposed to just saying, here are two people facing one another. They're going to make mistakes. They don't know everything, but they're going to try and work it out through conversation, um, which at its best, I think is a, a source of hope. Um, but But it doesn't always feel like that at present.
0: Yeah, and that even got me thinking about the, the public versus the private is that yeah. the, part, one of the differences is the relational aspect of it. I love Because that. I might be, I'm, I'm, I'm probably going to be more open to interrupting and correcting somebody who is like, Oh, I don't have to worry about, you know, if we're friends at the end.
1: I love that. I mean, I was a political reporter um, and, and, um and, and had the occasional bits doing uh talking head type thing on television. And, one of the things you notice among politicians and some of those cable figures is they disagree insanely, <laughs> but afterwards they kind of go for a drink together because it's a performance. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And they are sort of, they know, they know it's a particular culture. Whereas I think, you know, often if you're just sitting at home, you assume these guys must hate each other's guts. And I think more often than not, there's a kind of an understanding. And so even there, there is a relational aspect that is obscured um, by the public presentation. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. And that even gets me thinking about what you what you talk about in the book is there's this um, there's this sense that we need to be in agree like working towards agreement and versus living with okay, maybe we do maybe we do find some agreement, but living living with the disagreement. Can you talk about that?
1: Yeah, for sure. The, the thesis of the book in some respects is that the opposite of bad disagreement, which is the problem we're dealing with in the world today, is not agreement, but is good disagreement, right? And I think I saw in my personal life that an agreeable life, a purely agreeable life is at best quite boring. And at worst, I mean, it's a question of where do we think we're at our best? And I don't think we're at our best when we're just with people who agree with us because they tend to confirm our biases, push us to more extreme positions of what we already believe. And so at its worst, it has all of those pathologies. And so another way of saying what we want is good, arguments is we want ways of talking about our differences and those are not just racial differences or gender differences they're just the differences that we have in the fullness of who we are Mm -hmm. how do we create a culture and a and modes of conversation that do justice to that diversity and help us harness its force for good rather than um, it being a detraction. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, you know, I do think we're living at a very dangerous time in a lot of ways, um, but there's success stories too. <laughs> you know, if you go into local communities and you see um, how people work out their problems, Um, this is not, I hope the book is helpful. I hope it's a contribution, but in some ways it's giving language to what the best of us do already or what we do in our best moments already.
0: Yeah. I want to go back to something that you mentioned earlier, whenever we were talking about, um, voice in our disagreements, and you mentioned that sometimes it's setting up the right conditions for being able, can you talk about that? And what you've learned about what some of those conditions are, how can we set ourselves up if we're if we're not naturally you know disagreeable, um, to, yeah. to voice our our voice and our opinions and our beliefs.
1: So I believe that every disagreement should start with some agreement, and that's agreement about how we're going to have the conversation. So the one that was most important for me was when one person speaks, another person doesn't. But in exchange, we t- we're going to take turns, right? Mm-hmm. So one of the reasons why you don't have to interrupt me is because you're going to get a go after this, right? And, um, And you might agree, we're going to get roughly equal time in this disagreement because there are two sides here. So it's an agreement about how you're going to have the conversation, but importantly, it's also agreement about what you're disagreeing about, right? And we've all been in those discussions about who's doing the laundry or something that becomes also... Tours, also um, what you did last week, also um, your in-laws, so on. And so specifying what we're disagreeing about also means specifying what we're not disagreeing about. We're not disagreeing about whether we love each other. We're not disagreeing about whether we're going to stay together. We're not disagreeing about um, whether I respect you, right? And when we, start with by naming the dispute and we take some stuff off the table, that, that's an example of setting a, a, ourselves up for success mm-hmm. for me. So being deliberate means reaching that bit of agreement which at its most ba- in its most basic form is agreement about what we're disagreeing about and how we're going to disagree about it. Um, I think that can help. Mm-hmm.
0: I want to ask you, you know, sometimes whenever, sometimes you don't know what you're disagreeing about some, and like you throw in emotions into that as well, particularly, you know, around, um, you know, a a heated issue and it's like, okay, what have you learned about digging through the emotions or some of the, the tools or the questions or something like that, that help you get under and understand, okay, this is the thing that we are disagreeing about. You think this, I think this.
1: I love that. Um, I think the first thing is that bit of agreement, right? Which is exactly how you said it. Almost a little bit of a negotiation or just checking, just saying, hang on, just before we launch into this, this is what we're disagreeing about, right? And they might say no. <laughs> and you, you, there was a misunderstanding. And, so, and a lot of our, our disagreements stem from misunderstandings. Right. Or just saying, is this what you meant? Right. So there can be that moment of checking um, that I think just cools the temperature down a little bit, just makes it clear. We're about to get into this. Um, and yeah, I'm not sure of many exercises that take so much yeah. out of you where we do no warm Yeah. like that, you know, we just <laughs> start yelling. Yeah. And, and I don't think that, it can't be good, good for us. And I think the maybe the second thing I'll say on the emotions point is, and this is one of the hardest questions, um, and I still wrestle with it, but I don't think debate asks you to set aside emotion altogether. Mm -hmm. But it says maybe that emoting or the expression of your emotions is not um, sufficient, right? It's not the only thing we need either. And debate asks us to channel these strong feelings into making arguments, right And those are arguments that are clear about what what claim you're making that's supported with some justification um, that's illustrated with examples, maybe there's some evidence in there and, and I kind of go through how we build up an argument. but some of that channeling towards, structure and, 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 you know, and it's not like a box ticking exercise. It's a way to make your point in such a way that makes you comprehensible to the other side, which is a very difficult thing to do. I think that has a cooling effect as well, because you have to organize your thoughts a little bit, check, is this what I really believe? Am I expressing it in the way that's going to win the other side over, um, So some of that channeling um, I found to be useful um, in, in not getting rid of or dampening, but in harnessing the emotions.
0: Yeah. What are some of the things that you just see most people are not good at whenever it comes to disagreeing? Like I imagine like naming what the actual disagreement is about would be one of them. What are some of the common things that you're like, if we can get this right, if we can start doing this, this will help lead to much better uh, disagreement.
1: It's a great question. Um, and there are probably many answers to that question. Um, one thing I would throw into the mix is being a bit more judicious about which points we contest in an argument and which to let go. Mm -hmm. And, a lot of our worst disagreements have this feeling that well we actually just disagree about everything <laughs> so if that's the case what are we going to do now? yeah right and so i think the where i would go from there is first is going into a disagreement with a really clear idea of your aim right and your aim need not be persuading that person of every point you might make on a subject right so if you're arguing about where to go for dinner right it doesn't matter wholly all the wrong beliefs they might have about a, a cuisine or or you know or other disagreements you might have your main thing is you want to persuade them to go to dinner at this place and not that place and it may be in a lot of disagreements persuasion is not even the aim. Sometimes we can disagree just to learn more about each other, to see how our ideas interact and maybe um, force some kind of development. So having a sense of the many ways in which you can succeed in an argument, I think is really helpful. And another one about just picking your battles that I go through in the book is by um, I propose something called the RISA checklist, which is checking whether an argument or a disagreement is real. It's not an imagined slight, that it's important enough to justify the disagreement, that it's the disagreement is specific enough that you're going to be able to make some progress on it. So you're not debating the virtues of liberalism in a 20-minute in a conversation you're going to have in the car. And you want to check that the two sides are aligned in their objectives for having the dispute. So uh, again, it's a little bit of structure. I don't think very hard. It's four letters. Um, but that makes us pause and be a little bit more deliberate um, in the way in which we get into arguments.
0: Yeah. I was even thinking as, as you were talking about the setting what the aim is for it of just realizing that we can, like probably a good aim would not be to try to convince the other person. I would imagine just because we can't control that. However, what you were talking about of the, it, it seems so counterintuitive, but it's like, what if my aim was to simply learn what the other person's mm-hmm. perspective is? And it's like, well, I can control that.
1: <laughs> I love that. I mean, you, I think one thing is, you know, you can, You can have best case scenario, you persuade the other side, even worst case, learn more that seems pretty good. Um, And for me, the baseline is, you know, I went through a lot of different ideas about what a good argument is, given that's the title of the book. And the answer I came down to, it's just an argument where both sides walk away feeling like that was worth it. Mm -hmm. Not that it was amazing or that it was life-changing, but that it was worth it because that's what allows the conversation to continue. Mm-hmm. And maybe, um, I'm, I think I'm probably not willing to throw out completely the idea about persuasion, yeah. but the thing I might change, um, or, or that might, I might add about it is, um, persuasion is a more gradual thing mm-hmm. um, than people account for. And perhaps if you can leave the conversation saying, I'm closer, if only because they understand my position better, or if only because I gave them one point they couldn't quite, they hadn't thought about before. Yeah, um, those things can be uh, helpful markers along the way.
0: Yeah, and I think that that's a good point of what you were saying, and I think it's I think the aim can I guess be persuasion is just simply realizing that I can like I can't control what other people think, however I can control presenting the best argument. That I can.
1: Um, I love that. I love that. So
0: off of that, two things I want to ask you about um, that are part of arguing is I want to get uh, some of your thoughts on how do you become a better listener in an argument and how can we become better at clearly communicating like our points or ideas and like where, and I guess along with both of those things, where do you see people tending to get tripped up in and not being a good listener and not being a good communicator? I know that's a lot. That's
1: <laughs> <Right. A lot. laughs> Listening and talking, that's yeah. most of we, it. We, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, they're, they're, they're important questions. On the listening, you know, one thing I notice about debating that, that's unusual is that the best debaters tend to be slightly marginal characters, you know, the slight oddballs, or you know, not for any obvious reason. For me, it was obviously linguistic, cultural, but for for lots of reasons, visible or not. People who feel themselves to be outsiders a little bit. And the reason for that I think is because those people know to listen before they talk. And to read a room to figure out how you're gonna be received. And it begins with the realization that the aim of persuasion is to get someone from point A to point B, and B is just somewhere that's not A. To do that, you we're often very clear on the destination, where we want them to be, right? We want them to eat at this place. We want them to um, buy this car and not that car. We want them to hire this person and not that person. But we don't know where they're starting from often not in a deep way. And so debaters, when they're listening to people, take notes, right? You're, you, I think you're doing it a little bit right I am. now. Cal. Yep. Um, t- t- taking notes, right? Um, trying to, and when you're writing notes sometimes, not only writing down what they said verbatim, but, but you can often see where, where they're trying to go with this. So even looking at a stronger version of the point than they're presenting mm. right and sometimes asking just going back to this checking thing um disagreement is one important language but it's not the only language we have to speak all the time and we are multilingual in this way we can be interviewers as well as arguers and conversationalists and so on and so on and sometimes switching out of that helps so fleshing out as fuller picture of where they are, where they are coming from, I think is helpful. And there are some other um, bits of advice that I go through in the book, but I think those are, that's the spirit of it. Um, In terms of uh, making the argument, um, I think the, where people go wrong often is, I think a lot of arguments are shapeless. They're just kind of repetition of your point or the thing that you believe, or it's just kind of emoting. And there isn't a really a rhyme or reason to them. They're just a kind of a a cloud of feeling about a particular subject. And um, to go back to that channeling theme, um, I think every argument needs to answer at least four questions. It needs to be clear, what is the point you're making? And sometimes people struggle to articulate even that. Right, what, what are you saying besides expressing frustration about a certain um, situation? So what's the point that you're making? Why is it true, right? Why is that right? When has it happened before? So often an example or an illustration or a case study can help. So if you're saying, if you're, you're always late, right? So when has it happened before? And why does this matter, right? Who cares? So, um, Uh, if you're making the argument, we should be vegetarian, um, because eating meat is bad for the environment, right? Why does it matter that it's bad for the environment? Why does that mean we should not eat meat anymore? And so that's just an illustration that I think in order for an argument to be persuasive, there's not one thing it has to do. There's a bunch of kind of natural questions that people are going to have when they're presented with an argument. And so putting forward the point in a structured way that anticipates and answers some of these natural responses we're likely to have, um, I think that might be a starting place for making good arguments.
0: How have you learned about how to engage with someone who is not good at clearly stating their, their points of views, what they Believe and so on and so forth.
1: That's very interesting. Sometimes in that situation, you almost want to be their accomplice. For um, I think that might be a criminal term, so don't be an accomplice. <laughs> <laughs> but be there. Yeah. But be there. But be there. Uh...
0: Yeah. I I, I know um, I know what you're saying. Yeah. Good. Yeah, I'll be, be their partner, the moment, you know be, so yeah. the, <laughs> I was going to say like be their partner in crime, but that's that's even worse yeah. than accomplice. So
1: let's not do the crime. So you know be, yeah. be their ally, yeah. you know yeah. and help and help them build up the argument. So those four questions that I answered, those are questions you probably have, mm-hmm. right? If you're making a point, I'm probably wondering, is that true? Why do I need to care about this? Has this ever happened before? By asking them, not in an accusatory way, you can help them build up the argument. And why is that useful? It's useful because it makes them feel as though they had have not only been heard, but that the best version of their argument has been heard. And, th- and it, I think it's in that moment where you feel like I've put forward my best case, that they're ripe for persuasion. Because anything short of that, they can be like, I didn't pr- present myself very well today or um, that guy, you know, cut 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 um, cut me off when I was trying to make a point. And so um, helping someone be their best um, can actually be a very useful condition for persuasion and it often pushes you to be better as well. Um, and so I think that's one of the, the important lessons from debate
0: too. Yeah. And it even just got me thinking, cause I know that uh, again, in my mind, like I'm always trying to think through, how can we make like difficult conversations like this less intimidating? And even my thought yeah. of what you were saying was simply going like, Hey, I'm not sure I'm understanding what you're saying. Hey, do you mind if I ask a couple of questions yes. to help me better understand what you're trying to communicate?
1: I love that. And I wonder if a part of, you know, the, the background to all this that we're responding to is just ego you know and there's a lot of um people worry about losing face um and and there's just something about how we've come to think about argument that and i'm sure the presidential election debates don't help that it's it's kind of a we're all like waiting for someone to slip up so we can tweet about yeah and i think that trickles down to how we think about our day-to-day interactions, whereas in our day-to-day, we slip up all the time, right? And uh, we stutter and we um, say the wrong word. Um, um, you say on a podcast, "Someone should be your accomplice." <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know. So you say these things, and and um, and uh, and and one of the things that you learn from a career in debating is you're going to lose. You're going to lose a lot. Um, the, the world championships in debating is 500 teams. and There's one winner. So you're going to be in the 499 probably. And I was every single time, except once. Yeah. Right? And so um, that doesn't get rid of the ego, but maybe it unhooks the ego from winning or losing a particular round mm. as opposed to, doing well in the long scheme of, or doing better in the long scheme of things.
0: Yeah. What's helped you identify, okay, I think I'm, I, I'm not willing to concede because of my ego and on the flip side, what has helped you maybe identify of, okay, I, I can make whatever great argument that I have. I can have the best, you know, facts, I can have everything on my side and yet still the person might not be willing to concede because of their ego. great question.
1: I think the first thing is that part we were saying before about having many aims in a debate can help, Mm -hmm. right? So knowing um, it's not a total loss because they didn't change their thinking in one go, that helps a little bit. I think another for me is And this is something i'm wrestling with still is i think the best version of debate is one that ends at some point and debates do end at some point so one of the things that kids do instinctively really well is during the debate itself debate goes for about two hours including preparation and during the debate, you're, it's all high octane and it's, you know, you're wrong. I'm right. Everything you said is wrong. Everything I said is correct. But afterwards on the bus home, it's not uncommon to hear one kid say to another, that was a pretty good point. Not I'm giving up everything yet, but that was a pretty good point, mm-hmm. right? And that idea of, we're going to have debates. We're going to be candid about our disagreements. We're going to make arguments and present them to each other and try and persuade one another. But once it's over, right, we're going to find a different way of talking to each other. Maybe a way of reflecting on what we've just been doing up until this point. I think that can be helpful. Um, So that helps me manage yeah. some of, some of, some of, some of those, um, that ego that it may be hard to let go in the context of the debate itself, yeah. but in the other times when we're interacting with people, we need to find different ways of talking to them.
0: Yeah. And it, yeah. Almost do like an inventory or something like after, after the debate and going like, okay, I disagree with 95% of this, <laughs> but the 5%, yeah, you did pretty well.
1: Yeah. And, and being able to say, you know, I really believe what I said. Yeah. Right. But but I didn't put it in a very persuasive way. Yeah. You know, like I, I kind of messed up that I, I didn't, I wasn't clear on why I thought this. I, you know, and being able to separate those things being correct and being persuasive, um, that brings into sharper relief the fact that arguing is a skill right? And it's just not the case that the person with the, the better position or even the better credential, it's not the case that they will always win an argument. Um, and so returning to that point about what's on the table and what's offered, um, it doesn't make you more stupid. It doesn't make your point. Um, Invalid because you lost a particular argument. um The argument is has
0: its own life. Yeah. yeah and even what what you were mentioning made me think of this point that you make in the book. Which, whenever I read it, it man, it struck me because it just made me think it in a, <laughs> in a different way. Is you talk about sometimes truth is not enough in order yes. to win the argument. Yeah. Which I think you know, at least for me, it struck. Me, it's like well truth should be enough to, to win yes. argument. But can you talk about that and just unpack that idea?
1: It's a scary thing. Um, it's a scary, yeah, scary thing. So I'm, I'm calling you from Harvard now and, and the motto of the school is truth and that's the only word on the motto. <laughs> so clearly they <laughs> thought it was, enough. Um, but I don't think it is because, and, and, It's not enough because sometimes lies win the day. Manipulation wins the day. But other times because just something less than the truth is more attractively, more professionally, more adeptly communicated. And on some level, that is a scary thing. But on another I like what that demands of us. Because if in fact the truth was enough, we could afford to be a bit complacent. And importantly, we could afford to be smug. Because when we feel like we're in possession of the truth, we can just say, you're an idiot for not seeing it. Whereas if we take the view that, one is often very hard to know when you've grasped the truth or you're making a mistake. But even when we have, when you take the view that, oh, this is the start of the work and not the end of it. um, I think that pushes us to be better um, and better in a lot of ways, more compassionate and more patient with the other side, more diligent, um, more stylish, right? Because we have to think about how we're presenting it. Um, All of those things I think Press on us on in the right ways.
0: Yeah, and and as you were talking, I, I even just had this thought of sometimes in the debate, you're you're arguing for, against tr- against truths, against two truths, and it's like, well, is my ba- basically, is is my truth more important than than your truth? And it's like, well, they're they're both true. Yeah. In that.
1: Yeah. And and sometimes the reason why they can seem contradictory is because we haven't fleshed out the argument enough Mm. right so if we clarify the sometimes you know we exaggerate or we make sweeping generalizations but if we go into that mode of okay is that is that what you really believe you know all um whatever or whatever you know um as opposed to something a bit more nuanced a little bit more um a little bit less generalizing you know um then i think there are ways to then the pieces become small enough that maybe they might fit in some jigsaw Mm. and we can achieve some mutual understanding in addition to the disagreement
0: yeah what have you learned about uh like pushing back against someone else's you know premise or idea and how to do that in in a respectful way
1: The first is you want to um, give them an impression and hopefully it's a true impression that you've heard them out and that as best as you can, you've considered their argument in its best light. In terms of disagreeing then or pushing back, and I, I devote a chapter to this in the book. I think about it as all the skills that you learn of developing an argument, you can sort of apply in reverse. So in that argument about becoming vegetarian because it's good for the environment, you have to show that it is actually good for the environment and that the fact that it's good for the environment means we should become vegetarian. As opposed to, yeah, it's bad for the environment, but we really like it. or Um, It's good for our health or whatever. And when you're responding to that, rather than just expressing frustration, which I think is often what we do, or just why don't you agree with me? You want to be clear about what the nature of your objection is. So when you're listening to that argument from a vegetarian, maybe you disagree with the factual question of whether it's good or bad for the environment, or you disagree with the, more normative judgment that the environmentalism of this decision means it should change your dietary habits. And so being able to see how an argument is put together and locating exactly where your objection is, um, I think that's the starting place. And there's some, there's a lot of different things about how we respond and the different strategies we might use, but um, locating the objection and not just saying, I just disagree with this yeah. whole thing. Um, I think that is a good starting place.
0: Yeah, and that makes me think of uh, a- another idea that you talk about in the book of distinguishing between facts, judgments, prescriptions. Can you talk about that and and identifying them and, and maybe even rebutting, like what rebutting looks like for each of those?
1: Yeah. Um... Yeah, thanks for bringing that back because you know we—I've been sort of saying so far in the interview quite blithely, just name the dispute, yeah. <laughs> you know—and um, it's hard to do. It's actually quite yeah. hard to do. So, when you're having a debate, the example I often give about—and this, you know, a lot of my my friends have are, are now having children and they're thinking about it—and um, one debate I heard recently was about whether to send the kids to the local public school. And it just feels like a a pretty easy disagreement about whether we send the kids or not. We have to send them somewhere. Um, But if you scratch beneath the surface, you might find the two parents actually disagree about just factual questions of what the school is like. Do they have a music program or do they not? One person might believe they do, the other person just believes they don't. They might disagree about philosophically, normatively, do we have an obligation as parents to the local public school system or do we just do what's best for our kid? And so within that one disagreement about literally where do we place these children, (laughs) there's factual disagreements, there's normative disagreements. And so a big part of naming the dispute says, what is the heart of this? right? If it is the case that if both parents agree, if there's a music program, we should send the kids there that resolves the disagreement you see. And so identifying what the heart of the dispute um, that helps you reduce some of the crosstalk that we see a lot of. And in terms of your question about how that relates with rebuttal, we need to make different kinds of arguments and different kinds of rebuttal depending on the nature of the disagreement. So if it's just a factual disagreement, one perfectly reasonable response is just call up the school and ask, right? You don't have to make arguments about that. Or, um, and this is getting into more difficult ground, but when there's a dispute about the science of it, for example, on some issues, then you might have to present evidence in the form of scientific studies, assuming we are not ourselves experts in this subject. That's really different from a normative dispute where we can make philosophical arguments, right? Different again from prescriptive debates where there are lots of different reasons that we make the decisions that we do. Some of them are philosophical, some of them are intuition, some of them are something else. So. knowing the kind of dispute that you're involved in and what each one requires of you and how, how you're going to settle the dispute in each one. Um, that's how I would think about it.
0: Yeah. What are some parts of debate that you wish more people knew about or paid attention to?
1: One is listening. The image that we have of the debater is the speaker. Um, and there's a lot of that. and and that's an important part of it. But in an hour long round, um, you speak for probably seven minutes maximum as an individual um, in the format that I do. Um, And uh, even in some of the ones where it's between one individual, you you get half the time. So there's no format Mm -hmm. of debate that I'm aware of where you get more than 50% of the speaking time. So the rest of the time you're listening. That's one part. Another one I think that that falls on a similar um, track as that is so much of debating is an exercise in certainty. Um, It's being fully possessed of the view that you're arguing for and coming up with the best arguments and evidence for it. But the best debaters tend in the last minutes before the start of a round, to do something quite extraordinary. And they're called the side switch exercises where they turn to a new page and they come up with the four best arguments for the other side, or they look over their case as if through the eyes of someone who vehemently disagrees and tries to find as many holes as one can find. And that's not exactly empathy because you don't know exactly what the other side is thinking, but it creates a bit of wriggle room at a time when in our disagreements, we feel so frozen in place. Um, And through that wriggle room, I think we create a space through which empathy might be able to arise. Um, So I think the part of debating that people misunderstand, is they think it's just putting forward your view and sort of stuff everyone else. Whereas a lot of debating is about seeing two sides of an issue and for competitive advantage, importantly, right? Not as charity or something like that, trying to get at where it is exactly that the other side is coming
0: from. Yeah, I got two other things I wanna ask you about before. Uh, I ask you that. Is there anything that we haven't covered? I know we've we've covered we're doing a lot of stuff, well. is there we're anything doing just- well?
1: We're we're yeah. I think we're doing well.
0: <laughs> okay, cool. Uh one of one of the things that I think will probably stick with me uh the most out of this book is uh I think it's it's I think it's towards the end, definitely in the latter half, is you talk about um your experience in church and how that led to you uh, uh being being introduced to this idea of that it is okay disagree and you have this quote in there that i want to i want to read i want to give your thoughts on more but you say but i saw at church how the desire to win an argument could become all consuming and one that the 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 purpose in order of it was to you know win gain power so so." um and you, you continue the quote and you say how it oh man this is what really hit me how it overtook the impulse to seek truth and show mercy Mm -hmm. to others Mm -hmm. which again growing up it's like yeah seek truth but even in the pursuit of that seeking mercy Mm -hmm. for the other people can you talk uh just more just about that
1: yeah um it's a curious thing because in some ways my education in argument began in church um, church at its best sometimes feels like a book club where everyone's reading the same book <laughs> and they and they have these different perspectives on it. And, um, yeah. and it is really a work of interpretation, right? You have, you have these oh, yeah. words and yep. um, we see different things in it. We bring our life experiences to it. And through that process of not always not always conflict but disagreement slight differences we enrich our understanding of that text so in a lot of ways church does this quite well but there are instances often to do with um political questions that the church has to answer where it becomes existential and i know many congregations that just tear tear themselves apart like this and the one the church where I grew up went through a very similar process where um, this was in Australia. And in our uh, and and this was in 2018, where um, there was a referendum um, for same sex marriage. Right, so a referendum. Everyone in the country has a vote and thinks whether this is a good idea or not. And a year after that, um, there was a conversation at church about whether um, the church was going to recognize these marriages as a as a religious institution. Um, and there you saw some of the darker sides of what argument can be but also how it can intersect with religion i think because in terms of what we were saying before about the truth being all conquering i think both sides believed this is what the text says or this is um correct theology on this question and there's not much room for that for movement once you've invoked the word as being on your side um yeah so that's where I saw it. And um, the thing that helped the congregation get out of that was one, an important intervention by a pastor to invite members of the congregation to consider the other perspective in a very deliberate way, sort of very similar to, to what I was talking about before. But, but another one for me was... Um, and this is how I always felt growing up in church. Is church is a religious institution, but it's also a lot of other things. And you know, it's mm-hmm. childcare <laughs> sometimes, um, mm-hmm. and it's just uh, a soup kitchen literally sometimes. But other times, just for you know, people who have an, a, a, who are going through a hard time. And one of the oh. things that helped um, the congregation get through it is we had the disagreement but those other ways in which our lives had already become intertwined they were not going away and so even after the dispute someone had to do the dishes you know and um and someone had to do the pickups um for the older people and um just recognizing and and in the quote that you read um, that part about all encompassing is important. That disagreement is, in, mm-hmm. it's important. And I wrote a book talking about its importance and, and yeah. making the case for it, but it's not the only way in which we should get along. And so knowing yeah.
0: the place of disagreement,
1: um, I think it hel- helped us get through, um, a difficult period.
0: Yeah. And at least, and at least for me, and this is whenever it pertains to um, yes. My faith and engaging in disagreements around that. It, again, this is where agreement for me at least comes in handy because it's like, okay, what is ultimately unifying mm-hmm. us, or what is the most important thing? And you know, for for people who are part of a, a church or the Christian faith, it is you know faith in Jesus Christ. And so it's like, okay, can we can we agree on that? And I almost like, and that is separate far than anything yes. else. And we are allowed to disagree. Yes. Yes. And it's put, and it's putting that off the table
1: of the yeah. dispute. Right. Yeah. You know, sometimes we get in this and people say things like, do you even believe <laughs> And it's like, they do? <laughs> <laughs> they do. That's why they're here. Literally, you know? Yeah. <laughs> that's why they're, that's why everyone is here. And, um, and, and so just, you know, I think w- when we don't have boundaries and when we're not clear about what we're doing, we can end up questioning too much.
0: Mm-hmm uh uh wh- one other thing that I wanted to uh, ask you about is I know that um you know debate is still a, a part of your life but you have largely transitioned from being a, a debater and being heavily involved in debate and I would just be curious to hear what has helped you like moving in that transition from you know hey i am I am set on this one you know um, this one uh this this path of debate and then deciding hey I, th- I think I am going to choose, oh. A different path, which is which is a, a situation that many people find themselves it's really in. Really interesting, and I would, and I would just love to hear from you. What are some of the things that have helped you in that process?
1: It's a wonderful question. Writing about it helped me um, achieve some distance from it. To be honest about what I think I learned and the things I worry about things I'm not sure about things I think are um, the dark the darkness that comes with the light of it um that helped I think the other is not disconnected from what you were saying about religious disagreements having a sense of the purpose and the underlying purpose and interest that Brought me to debate. And I would say that was, I don't think this is what I was thinking of as an eight-year-old, but in but you know, but there was, but whatever that pull was, I think it's something like, can we find ways to make our differences work for and not against us? I had to answer that question as an immigrant. I had to, I have, I have to answer it all the time as someone who moves countries constantly. And, but I've I've come to recognize it as not the domain of minorities or, you know, of, of, of people who have this particular experience, but as a feature of our experience that comes not only from big transitions, but from the transitions we have to make day to day. And so that question that underlying question to which debate is one answer. I think I'm still trying to find other ways into it. And I guess I, I did it in my first career as a reporter, as a journalist, and I'm doing it now as a, as a law student and hopefully as a lawyer. So I find them
0: yeah.
1: different lenses and different variations um, and different experiences that, 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 Help me provide a richer answer to that same question.
0: Yeah. Uh, last thing I want to ask you is, what are you most grateful about for your time during debate?
1: I'm grateful for my voice. Um, you know, when you're debating and and when you're raising your voice for the first time. And I felt that way even a little bit being on on tour for this book and giving a lot of these interviews. Um, There's a lot of, there's a period of transition where you try on a lot of voices. Um, Sometimes you're really extroverted and you wanna be this charming person who takes everybody off their feet. Other times you wanna be this sort of scholarly kind of broody poet and, But at some point the voice fits and you say, oh, I, I sound like that. This is how I sound. And, um, debate gave me that. Um, and I won't let go of it (laughs) and I use it every day. And, um, yeah, I don't know. I don't know it's such a gift that I, I don't know if I would have known to ask for it.
0: Mm. Yeah. Well, Oh, I know that people are going to, you know, want to keep up with you and get your book, good arguments. Where's the best place for people to go to do those things?
1: Um, my website is hello, Bozo. So hello, um, And uh, the book is out in, um, in the US with Penguin, with William Collins in the UK, with Scribner in Australia and translations are coming. So you can see those details there. um, And uh, it's available where good books are sold.
0: Awesome. Well, Bo, thanks so much for being on the podcast today. And thanks for doing the work.
1: I enjoyed the conversation so much. Thank you very much, Caleb.
0: So many things, many takeaways from this conversation that I have. And I just want to go through uh, some of the ones that are uh, that are just top of mind right now. One, I think just the idea that debate and disagreement can be something that we that we do together. and that might sound very simplistic, but it's simply, I guess how I'm thinking about it is that it's there's a tendency to think that it is one person versus another person. And yes that is present in debate and disagreement. However, it it can be an, an act of of you know just as as we were talking about earlier in that quote that I mentioned of uh, of seeking the truth and showing mercy together that there's a lot that we can learn from the the other person that they can form and better shape our perspectives, and sometimes that might mean changing our perspectives, and in other cases, it might mean may, or might mean sharpening our arguments, sharpening our our views as well. And so, definitely thinking about that and realizing that 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 is easier said than done, obviously, but just knowing that 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 can be a possibility. So that's the first thing that's got me thinking. The second thing is just the idea of um of you know for me being a follower of Jesus and being a part of a church of just realizing that the church the church is meant to be a place to where whatever, where we can engage in these questions, where we can en- we should be able to engage in these disagreements. Because the ultimate thing that unites us, the ultimate thing that that should be united us, uniting us, is faith in Jesus Christ. And you know, one of the ways that that I uh, personally think about it is that there are there are tiers of what I call um, faith. That there are things in the first tier that are that are the most important. These are the most important things as it pertains to um, the Christian faith. And one of them is you know. Uh, everyone is made in the image of God. Another one would be um, the resurrection of Jesus, as well. Another one would be um, of the the um, of the of the church, as well. In that, uh, nothing will overcome uh, the the church, and not the you know not the you know the institution, but the movement, and and several other things. And just realizing that you know, for me, that those are what is most important. And that, and and I w- and I would include, you know, um, uh, that everyone has sinned as well. That and that everyone needs um, redemption. And just realizing, okay, if we can, if we can agree on those things, that we can allow there to be disagreement in everything else, and that we can allow for there to be disagreement, even if it's uncomfortable as well. And, but I think, just more importantly, just realizing that that the church should be a place to wherever we can engage in these types of conversations to where we can engage in conversations to where we don't have to agree completely with one another. And I, and I just loved what he said, you know, towards the end that there are just some things that are just, they're off the table. We do agree about these things and that we don't need to question our, of whether or not we agree on it. And so yeah and and just also going back to that quote of how important it is in in disagreement and debate to to seek the truth but also to show mercy as well that's that's gonna be something that that rings true with me for a while so those are some of the things that i am thinking about from this conversation i would love to hear from you and some of the things that you are thinking about or learning from from this conversation from previous episodes or just in life in general and the best way to reach out to me and let me know is learnerscornerpodcast podcast at gmail.com you can reach out to me there with any ideas or things that you would love to see on the podcast or just things that you're learning from as well and i think that's all that i have for today i do want to say thank you to sam massey for providing the music for this podcast thank you to bo for being on the podcast as well and for engaging in such a very fun conversation and thank you for listening all the way to the end of the episode my name is caleb mason and until next time keep learning and keep growing